0: If you would turn in the book of Ephesians chapter 6, we're finishing up there today and finishing up what we started last week. I don't know, there's a story about a frog and a scorpion. They came, their, their lives intersected, and the scorpion wanted to get across the creek and saw this frog, and so he says, Froggy, could you get me across the creek? And the frog looked at him and said, hmm, this is a scorpion, what do I do? Thought for a second, and he said, Well, you know what? He wouldn't sting and kill me because he wants to get across. And if he stings and kills me along the way, then we both die. So he says, Sure. So the scorpion hops on his back, and they kind of start making their way to the creek and across the creek. And about halfway across, the scorpion stings him. The frog says to him, Why would you do that? And the scorpion simply said, Hey, I'm a scorpion. It's what I do. Now, there's a truth there that the enemy of our soul is, he's our enemy. And what he does is he comes to attack us. The Bible even kind of alludes to him as being a scorpion. Luke chapter 10, verse 10. In the book of Revelation, you'll see where the enemy is pictured. Uh, There's a lot of scorpions that are noted in there. He comes to sting. What his life is about is attacking. He attacks. He always has attacked. And until the day of his demise, when Jesus comes and executes the final judgment, he will continue to sting and to attack God's people. We're in a spiritual battle, and last week we did just a flyby on who the enemy of our soul was and some of the characteristics of his life, and I won't review those this week, but if you want to listen and find, uh, find out what we talked about last week, then uh, go online. But what we learned is, is that I believe this passage here is probably one of the most critical for us to learn and to live out and to apply to our personal lives. Because if we don't, we will never be able to move forward and grow in our life of faith. And that's the reason a lot of Christians get stuck. A lot of Christians live an unvictorious life because they're always beat down and defeated by the enemy. We started this last week, and uh, we really understand that in these six chapters of the book of Ephesians, Paul is saying that if you are a true Christ follower, As defined in chapters 1 through 3 where you have understood that Jesus died for your sins and you responded to that and received him and then if you're living the way that a Christ follower is defined to live in chapters 4 through 6 you will ultimately end up in the crosshairs of the enemy of your soul the devil so Paul emphasizes, underscores, and highlights in this passage the importance of our need to be strong, to stand in the Lord, and to suit up with the armor that he's given us. He says, be strong in the Lord. Put on the full armor of God. Let's pick it up at verse 13 where it says, this is why you must take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day Well, what's the evil day? Well, it's really any day. It's all days. It's today, wouldn't you say? This is why you must take up the full armor of God. And then having prepared everything to take your stand, what does he say? Stand, therefore, with what? Well, with truth. Like a belt around your waist, this truth protect the reproductive area of your life, that we are to reproduce truth. We're to be people of truth. And then he says, "Righteousness like armor on your chest. This righteousness that comes from Christ protects our heart, the emotions." And he says, "Let your feet be sandaled with the readiness, uh, uh, sandaled with the readiness for the gospel of peace, so that wherever we go, we are people of peace because we're people of the Prince of Peace, Jesus." Now, hear me. That doesn't mean peace at all costs or at any cost. There are times when we have to stand up, say this is right, this is wrong, this is good, this is bad, and deal with the fallout of it. It's not peace at any cost, because some people kind of believe that, that Jesus was this weak, kind of limp-wristed, milk-toast guy. No, Jesus stood for righteousness and against unrighteousness. And now we're going to pick it up today. In every situation, take the shield of faith, and with it, you will be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Who's the evil one? Well, it's talking about the devil here, the one who we're to put on the full armor against because our battle isn't against the people around us. The battle really is against him and his emissaries. So take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is God's word. And with every prayer request, Pray at all times in the spirit. Stay alert in this with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. Pray also for me that this message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery, the unveiling of the gospel. For this, I'm an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might be bold enough in him to speak as I should. Well, he says here, Stand, be strong, get suited up, put on the armor of God. We said last week very clearly that life isn't a playground, but ultimately it's a battleground. If you're a Christ follower, you have to learn to suit up. Now, in this whole suiting up, I, I, th- this is good if you do this. I kind of kidded about it last service, but really it's a good thing. Some people think that every day, okay, I got to get up, and, put, and they kind of go through, put on the helmet of salvation. Okay, I'm going to take up my shield of faith. And they walk through this whole process. That's fine if you do that, but understand this, you really don't have to. Once you come to Jesus, you have, you have been outfitted with this armor. Now the key is, is that you walk in it. For instance, you you walk with truth. To the degree that you walk with truth. To the degree that you walk in righteousness, do what's right versus what's wrong. To the degree that you embrace the word of God and to not just hear it and know it, but to do what it says. To the degree that you do all of these things, you will be standing against the forces and the onslaught of the enemy. To the degree that you don't do it and you do those other things, guess what? You're really opening the door to the attacks of the enemy in your life and around you so while it's kind of this spiritual talk there's a very practical application of living it out you can't just see the spiritual armor as some kind of little kind of trite Christian thing that you do it has a a power behind it when you live it out because you have it on it's kind of like the boxer you know he's in his robe and he's in the ring and <clears throat> he's over there shadow boxing and shuffling and moving around and warming up and then all of a sudden the, the, the bell rings and he's got to go back to his corner and he disrobes his big robe and he gets ready and the first thing he does because he's getting ready to go fight is he, he bows down and he, does, he crosses himself a bunch of times and somebody looks at him and goes, come on, can, can that really help him? Someone says, yeah, if the kid can punch, you know, he'll be all right. If he can fight, he'll happen. And it's the same thing with you. And you can do all these histrionics of trying to put on the armor of God. But if you're not walking in the truth, if you're not trafficking in truth, if you're not righteous in making right decisions, if you're not in the word and allowing the word to study you, and you're going to be like that boxer. You may be able to go through all the religious stuff, but you'll never be able to do a death blow to the enemy, even though Christ has given you the victory. So that's why this becomes so important. Well, the first thing we see today is the shield of faith. And it says, what does the shield of faith do? It's so you, with it, you will be able to extinguish the fiery darts of the flaming arrows of the evil one. If you would uh, take your finger and turn back just probably about 10 pages or so to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul's going to give a little bit more insight into this battle and how it works. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul is writing to a church that has not been very welcoming to him because they were a very carnal church. It means they had a lot of sin going on there and they didn't deal with it. And Paul stepped up and said, deal with it. Otherwise, it's going to be like leaven that begins to spread throughout, and you're going to have some serious issues. And he's coming back now. They have dealt with the sin. They have forgiven the person, brought him back into fellowship, but they're still not real happy with Paul, and so Paul writes them, and he's thinking about coming to them. And he says, Now I, Paul, I make a personal appeal to you by the gentleness and graciousness of Christ. I, who am humble among you in person but bold towards you when absent. He's really, that's not what he's saying, that's kind of what they said, and he's basically kind of rhetorically saying, you say that I'm really bold when I'm not there. But I beg that when I am present, I will not need to be bold with the confidence by which I plan to challenge certain people who think they are walking in a... Uh, who think we are walking in a fleshly way? He basically, basically is saying, says, "By the time I get there, I hope you get this worked out because I don't want to have to come like a bull in a china closet. But if you force me to, game on." He says, "For though we are, uh, uh, for though we are walking in the flesh, this is we're walking. Everyone in here right now is in the flesh. Who we are, we don't wage war." in a fleshly way we don't fight Ephesians 6 remember against flesh and blood but it's powers and principalities of the air our warfare is not fleshly but we are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds we demolish arguments and every high minded thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ What Paul's talking about here is another level and dimension of warfare that goes beyond the natural, the fleshly, the what we see. See, the most critical area of your life, loved ones, is the battle that takes place in your mind. Did you know your mind is the sexiest part of your body? Sometimes we don't think that, but it really is. Our mind determines what sexy is. What is sexy to one person may not be sexy to another. How we control this sex organ really determines how we live out our life sexually. It's the same thing when it comes to this battleground. It is the control center of life. It's the place where life gets distilled and deciphered, where where you make up the decisions, the beliefs on how you're gonna live. What you believe will determine how you behave. The great Christian writer, Christian leader J. Oswald Sanders said it this way, the mind of a man is the battleground on which every moral and spiritual battle is fought. That's where it all starts, and it's ultimately probably where it's all going to end, depending on how you take care of your mind. Now this word here, stronghold, that Paul uses, it's a a tower. It's a place of strength. And he says, listen, that's where the enemy comes. And he establishes a pattern of thinking in your mind that is contrary to the thinking and the knowledge of God. And what happens for so many of us is we begin to think like the world thinks. We begin to dive into the conventional wisdom of the day. And when we do that and we're not getting our mind renewed by God's thoughts, guess what happens? Well... Brick by brick, there's this stronghold of the enemy that begins to really take over our thinking. And Paul says it's like these fiery darts that begin to take captive our thoughts. Now here where he talks of the, uses the word thoughts, these are designs, they're fractional things that come, they're quickies. The Roman soldiers carried this large shield. Shield is about four foot by two foot. It was made of wood, and they would have a layer or two of leather over it. And oftentimes, before they'd go to battle, they would soak it, the leather in water so that <clears throat> what the, enemies, their, uh, the Roman enemies would use is they'd use these things called fiery darts, where they would dip these darts, arrows, in pitch, and they'd set them on fire. Then they'd shoot them, and then they'd hope they'd catch something or somebody on fire. Well, it's the same thing. Paul is saying, listen, your mind is the same way. Where the enemy comes and he's shooting these darts, these thoughts that he is hoping will ultimately absorb into your mind and soul. This word here in, 1 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 is the word naoma, and it's thoughts. They're the quickies, the pop-up thoughts, the fiery darts that come from hell, and hell hopes they will lodge in your mind and thinking. These are things, sometimes, hear me, that you can't always control. Have you ever had a thought that you just go, wow, where'd that come from? I don't think like that. I don't want to think like that. And it's just there. That's a fiery dart. Have you ever been driving somewhere and all of a sudden you thought, oh, what would it be like to go off this cliff? Hmm. Or, or, I mean, something just really absurd. That's a fiery dart from hell. And probably most of us have them. And you just go, where did that come from? And a lot of times, those we don't control. They just come. It's what we do with them afterwards that that really matters. John Calvin, great preacher, uh, said it this way. You can't keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest. And that's how we have to deal with these Naomas, these thought, these quickies. See, these are designed, they are tailored to... To, to your specifications. See, the enemy can't read your mind, but he knows your weaknesses. He knows human weakness. And these will be designed fiery darts to come and be a scheme or a schematic as it says in Ephesians 6 to work against you. Have you ever had just kind of what you found to be an unfounded fear of something or someone all of a sudden just pops up? Wow, why am I afraid of that? It's a fiery dart. You ever come to church just really, okay, man, I'm focused on God. I'm loving God. I want to worship. And then all of a sudden you come in and you go, nobody likes me. Nobody cares about me here. Or maybe you become cynical and you go, why are we bothered? this? This this doesn't make sense. And you, you haven't thought that before. And all of a sudden it just kind of pops up. That's a fiery dart launched from hell. Have you ever seen someone all of a sudden just made a quick judgment and you go, I don't think like, what? who do they think they are? And all of a sudden you go, wow, I don't want to think like that about somebody. Just, just popped up. That's, that's a fiery dart. Have you ever delighted in somebody else's misfortune and you find, man, I don't do that. It's a fiery dart. I mean, you could just go on and on, all those fractional momentary thoughts that the enemy hopes, and probably most of them get at them during the day. You know, we probably face them all the time. Because the battleground is your mind. And these flaming arrows launched from the forces of hell. When they stick into your mind and you begin to embrace them, well, then you're headed on a slippery slope down. And it will begin to affect your life. I received a I have an email pen pal, I'll call them. And this person, probably once a month, will just write me and say, you know, Pastor, this is what I learned on Sunday, thanks. It's how it worked into my life. Well, they wrote me last week and I got their permission to share this. But it's, this is a great example of these thoughts and how they start with just a fractional thought, but then they begin to move to the next thing that Paul's gonna talk about. Now, this Sunday, you talked about how the devil causes doubt, but we let it fester and grow. And this explains some of the stuff that I've been going through. I've been having some really negative thoughts about my husband and I couldn't figure it out. Thoughts that I didn't even agree with. You hear that? This isn't how I think, but they came. It was just, uh, well, now he's just getting nice and being nice to me to suck up and get what he wants. That was her thought. So she says, and this is the boring example that I'll give you. My husband told me to go ahead and buy an expensive juicer that I'd had my eye on. Now, he likes to make sure that we have in our family whatever we want if we can afford it. He and I have never fought over money. It's simply a tool, period. We know that. But now fast forward, Pastor, one weekend. There was a gun that that my husband wants that was now on sale, and he approaches me about buying it while we were in line at the store paying for the gun, the thought comes to me that he had just let me buy that juicer last week so that I could go along with getting the gun. (laughs) You've all been there. You've thought like that, haven't you? And she goes, well, I was really kind of shocked that I was having doubtful thoughts about my husband. The whole thing was just really confusing, like I was missing something. I quickly dismissed the actual thought and reminded myself that my husband is very open, straightforward, and would never try to work me to get stuff. He'd discuss what he wanted, and then we would work it out. The fact that I had such a thought was more upsetting than the thought I had itself. And I began to get upset about this, and some other minor negative thoughts were taking place. Then Sunday, you said that when... Uh, what you said about the devil being a liar, it was like, boom, that explains it. Yesterday, my husband and I had been going, um, uh, yesterday I told my husband what we'd been going through. Turns out he's been wrestling with it too. He was thinking that I thought he had me by the juicer so he could get his gun. And it upset him because he knows that I trust and believe in him and couldn't figure out what was happening. See, that's a powerful example of just a general thing in life, how the enemy can just kind of begin to throw something in and get you thinking wrongly. Because, see, those fractional momentary thoughts can take root, and it leads to the next part where Paul says, we've got to cast down, we've got to demolish imaginations. So it moves from these little quickies to this thing called imaginations and speculations. The the word there is logismos. Now, you don't care about that other than what you need to know is we get the word logic from this word arguments. It's the idea of arguments and speculations and imaginations. It's not the flashing thoughts, but if you don't take care of the flashing thoughts, they can soon turn into imaginations, Speculations. And a nest begins to get built in your mind over these things. See, these are systematic, logical points of reasoning, logical argumentation used to debate by the enemy to break you down. In the Greek, in, in the Greek culture, one of the things that they had a lot of, they had a lot of philosophers, they had a lot of thinkers. They were known for their Sophia, their, their, their wisdom. These guys would get together and they would sit around and one guy would want to debate something so he'd come up with a subject and then he'd make a statement and then another guy would stand up and refute it and then he'd stand up and, you know, restate or reestablish his thinking on it and then the other guy would stand up and they just went back and forth, back and forth in this debate until finally one of them was worn down and basically said, you win. That's the picture of what the enemy does to you. If you allow the fiery dart to come in and it moves from a naoma to a logical thought and argumentation, how many of you have been there where you've seen the enemy just begin to wear you down? No, I'm not going to do that. Yeah, but you should because it will help you. You'll enjoy it. You deserve it. No, I'm not going to. Blah, blah, blah. Yes, you should. Because blah. And you go back and forth, back and forth. And finally, you go, yeah. Okay, I deserve it. Now hear this. You can never blame the devil for that. He may be the originator of it, but you can't blame him for it. Because if you're walking with this stuff called the armor of God, you have been empowered and you are victorious to be able to say no. But if you can begin to understand how the enemy works in your mind, Throwing these darts Hoping they take And then begins to use it As an argument against you Then you can stand Against it See he'll do this It starts as that little Fractional thought Give you a lustful thought and Then it moves to lustful thinking And then it moves to Lustful behavior You begin to hear God's holding out on you He's a buzz kill He's a joy kill And then pretty soon You look around And you go yeah I can't do these things that everybody else gets to do. And you'll begin to believe that God is a buzzkill. It's funny, I had one of my friends here wrote on one of the connection slips last week. He said, hey, Pastor Terry, I just want you to know I hate Ephesians. It's been a real buzzkill for my life. But he said that God's been speaking so strongly to him and changing some significant areas in his life. See, that's how we have to think. It's not that God's a buzzkill. It's that he's protective, and he wants to help you. See, when the enemy shoots these fiery darts of temptation, doubt, accusation, what we get to do, loved ones, is simply turn to God in faith, to believe he is who he is. Your faith is about the dynamics of your relationship with Christ. It's not a feeling that you have. Too many people go, I want to go to church and get the feeling. I want to go to this place and get a feeling. It's not about a feeling. It's about a faith. 1 John 5 talks about that that book, 1 John, was written so that we may believe, not feel. Now, feeling is good. There's nothing wrong with it. But too many people go, I don't feel God. Therefore, he's not. That's a lie of the enemy. It's not a dream that you conjure up that, oh, boy, I just kind of got this God thing. And I, I you know, no. This is reality. And the faith, the shield of faith, is that you are walking with this God, Jesus Christ, every day. See, I have faith in my wife, Trina. She has faith in me. That means we trust each other. I am not worried that she's out right now well doing something. And she doesn't worry about me, that when I travel, I'm going to be doing something. because we've been together now for 34 years. I have faith in her, and I keep faith with her. And because of that, we are just very confident. We don't always feel married, but we know we are. See, as we walk with God and get to know him, we become people of faith, not because of a theological persuasion, a doctrine that we believe, but because we're getting to know God better that I've really come to know this living God. I, I, I got to ask you this. Do you feel like you know Christ better today than you did six months ago? If you don't, hear me, if you don't, then you're probably not living with this armor. You're probably not living out the things that God has given you to put on and live out. See, I've been walking with God for 37 years. Years, and I just know not only is he real, but he's there for me, and he is fighting with me. Now, see, Paul isn't writing this letter to the Ephesian church to just—he's writing it to an church, and that's going to be uh, sent out to other churches in Asia Minor. It's not written just to an individual, but he's writing to a church. He's not addressing one soldier but he's addressing an army. You know, individual soldiers are pretty easy to pick off because they kind of get out there on their own. They're not real hard to break down. Part of the Roman warfare that made them so effective was they would use these four-by-two shields together to to really form an impenetrable wall. Row, the first row. soldiers, they would put their shields here and get down behind them so the whole front row is protected. Then the second row behind them would lift their shield above them and cover their heads. Why? So that when the flaming arrows came, shields would be able to extinguish the fiery darts. This is a point of application I want you to take today. You are so much stronger standing shoulder to shoulder with other Christ followers than you are trying to be a lone ranger, lone wolf, independent, I can handle it on my own. I see so many people in the church that say, I don't need a growth group. I don't need to have fellowship. I don't need to talk to anybody at a table. I don't need anyone to pray for me. I just want to come and go, come in late and get out early. I want to be the farthest away from the closest person which is really unhealthy to live this life because you'll be the very ones that the enemy will begin to pick off. There's a quote from the Citizen Soldier, Soldiers magazine that says this, I never observed any loners on the front lines. Everybody had a buddy. And we're doing Band of Brothers and Soul Sisters once a month and we're going to be kicking off some small groups here in a, in a few weeks. You need to be connected, friends. You need to be shoulder to shoulder. Otherwise, it's so easy for you to simply become a casualty. Well, the next one is the helmet of salvation. Uh, salvation is important. The word means wholeness and completeness. Most people, when they come to church and they hear salvation, it, the, the, the whole thought is, okay, that's my asbestos suit from hell. You know, so I'm protected and I get to go to heaven. No, when God talks about salvation, he's talking about body, soul, spirit, the whole person becoming whole. It's not a, it, it is a one-time happening, but more importantly, it's a journey and a process. And what he's saying here is this is what needs to take place, is wholeness and completeness in your thoughts, in your minds, and in your reasoning. Why? Well, because this is the seedbed of the greatest battle you'll face. This is where most people lose the battle. Too many people's thinking isn't renewed by God's word or God's thoughts. Well, but it's focused on the fractured, chaotic thinking of the world. The conventional wisdom of the day. What do people out there say? Let me give you a couple of examples. That way I'll make sure some of you go away mad. Um, politics. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a big believer in politics to some degree. I, I'm a registered um, voter. And I vote every... Election. I think, I don't know that I've missed many since 1976 when I was first eligible to vote. I believe in it. I encourage and challenge our church to be involved in the process. But let me give you some worldly thinking that the enemy would love to have you believe that Jesus is aligned with one party and if that party gets into the White House, then it will change every house in the United States. There are Christians that really do believe that. That's a lie. It's not true. To the degree that you believe a political party is going to change this nation or this world, I'm sorry, but you have begun to bought into the lies of the enemy. It's not a negative statement. It's the truth. No political party will ever change this world. I was coming. I had, a, I had this day that was just packed on Tuesday. I flew to Portland because uh, I had to go to Eugene. It's a two-hour drive, and the flights going into Eugene were weird, and I couldn't do it. So I drove for two hours to Eugene, had a two-hour meeting, then I drove back to Portland to catch a flight to come home Tuesday night. Coming home, it was interesting. In this rental car, I was by myself. And the first hour, I just found this, uh, this radio station. Guess what it was? It was a party pundit gal. And she was going off on the other party and the other party's candidates. I mean, just ripping them up a good one. And it was, and I, and I, it was really kind of sickening, but I just thought, well, this is interesting. So I listened to it for an hour. That was from five to six. Six o'clock, she's off. I'd start rolling. I thought I'd find some music. But before I come to any music, I come to a guy. He's from the other party. And he is doing a, he's just ripping and rolling against the other party. So I listened to him for an hour. Can I tell you something? That's what happens with people. Is they they have this party persuasion. I have a party. But I'm not wedded to it. It's not like, oh, they're going to save me. They're going to save you. They're going to save this world. But, but we hear that, and, and when you hear that long enough and all the negativity, you really begin to believe that. And that becomes your conventional wisdom. This is what I believe, and I challenge you as you move into this. Don't think, there's nothing wrong with being part of a party, but don't ever think that Jesus is clapping for one party. He is transcendent of politics. He would have his own party because there are good things of the Democrat, there are good things of the Republican that Jesus would say, you know what, I'm gonna take both of those and I'm gonna have my own thing, the Jesus party. Unfortunately, we're not able to really do that. But don't ever think, loved ones, and I'm gonna talk about politics in a few weeks um, just to kind of go a little bit more on this, but don't ever think that a political party is gonna save this country. How about education? I'm for education. I believe, listen, get as much education as you want. Someone was in a meeting yesterday and someone said, I hate school. I was sitting there thinking, man, I'd I'd like to, right now, this time, I'd like to to go back to school for about three weeks or something. (laughs) It would be a nice reprieve. I love education. I love learning. But don't ever think, don't buy into the lie that if we just get more education, our culture will change. It will help. It will never change it. And there's a lot of people that believe, well, let's just get more education. See, the call here is to bring God's thoughts to your life, the helmet of salvation. Albert Einstein said it so well, I want to know God's thoughts. The rest are details. See, when you get God's thoughts to your life and experience and you begin to focus on the objective word and not the subjective feelings and personal beliefs of people, your life will get better, I promise you. As a pastor, I want to help you think God's thoughts. I don't want to tell you what to believe. I want to help you think God's thoughts. You're not going to hear me promote a a politician or a party. You're going to help. I'm going to talk to you about making sure you're thinking what God wants. And probably by voting one party, you'll never get that. But I want you to learn to hear God for yourself so that you can't be taken down by the enemy and by, the, by the, just the conventional wisdom of the day. Can I tell you, there's too much non-think in Jesus' name. We've got too many people think for us. People who are hateful in Jesus' name. They speak on the same issues on both sides with hate. It's kind of like when I was listening to going up there. Now, they weren't Christians, but Christians do that. When anything moves from a, 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 a discussion and a dialogue to a cause, it will always cause problems and division and pain. There's a lot of people that think morality doesn't matter, that anything goes in Christianity. It doesn't matter how you live. I mean, you know, I mean, Jesus really didn't stand for anything, did he? I mean, he just loved everybody. Yes, he did, but he never winked at sin. We live in a crazy, mixed-up world, loved ones, and the church is the same. And Paul is saying, if you don't want to be taken under the undertow of the enemy, then learn to think God's thoughts. Be renewed in your thinking so you're able to overcome the world, the twisted thinking. But hear me, it will not happen by osmosis. You will have to set yourself to do it. You can't just kind of have a Sunday morning 45-minute talk and go, okay, now I'm going to start thinking God's thoughts. When he talks here about the next thing, is the, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. The, the Roman soldier's sword was, it wasn't a big one where they'd unsheath it and pull it out and brave heart it. It was a, a smaller short sword because so much of their fighting was done hand-to-hand combat. Paul uh, Paul says in Ephesians that our sword is the word of God. It's the sword of the Spirit. And he says, I have given this into your hands so you can put it into your heart. Part of it is quoting scripture, part of it is knowing the scriptures. But even more than that, it's about learning how to use this Bible so you can hear God's voice above all the sounds and the myriad of voices that demand equal time in your life today. The radio, the TV, the pundits, the books. This Bible says there is truth, there are boundaries, there is right and wrong that can be identified. And because you serve and live with the living God, you can choose right. And that's our call. Now, there's two words that is used in the Bible, two main words to help us understand the word. You'll see it there in your notes. There's the logos. It comes to the, the word logos is word, and it means whatever the word logos is used, it's the told Bible. It's this whole thing. Acts 20, verse 27 talks about Paul came to the church at Ephesus, and as he was leaving, he said, I have not, I have not ever been one To preach and teach the whole counsel of God to you. I've given it all to you. I didn't focus on faith. I didn't focus on marriage. I didn't focus on gifts. I didn't focus on this. I gave you the whole thing. That's the logos. Why is that important? Because if you're not getting the logos in you, then you can't really use the second part which is the word rhema. It's the word that is used there in Ephesians chapter 6 where it talks about the word of God. Do you remember when Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, remember when he was facing the devil out in the desert? He was hungry. It says after he was hungry, Mark 4, excuse me, Matthew 4 and Luke 4, it says, and when he was hungry, the enemy came to him. And what did he tempt him with? Hey, why don't you just turn these rocks into bread? (laughs) I bet you're hungry. What did Jesus say? No, it is written. And what does he do? He quotes out of the book of Deuteronomy. You know what he does there? Because he knew the Ramah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and the prophets he was able to access a thing called a rhema, a precise word for the precise moment that had to be spoken to be able to combat the enemy. Imagine if you were taking in the logos, how God through his spirit could use this in you to begin to fight against the enemy. When you get tempted with something, when you get those bad thoughts, you can say, uh-uh, Jack, go to hell. This is what the Bible says. Sorry, but you can say that to the enemy because hell was created for him and his, his emissaries. It was not created for people. So don't ever tell anyone to go there. But the enemy, quote the scripture. You're tempted with, oh, that mouse. I'm one click away. Oh, I've got a rhema. From the lagos. How can a young man keep his way pure? How can a grey haired man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against me. Get sin against thee. Thank you, God, that you brought that to my mind. Because now I don't want to sin against you. I'm going to go call my wife. Honey, would you take my mouse for a while? See, the ram is the precise, the specific words you can call on because you know this word. Now, let me give you the bad news. As Christ followers, we have a position of ultimate victory over Satan because of what happened on the cross. Read Colossians 1 and 2, and you'll see this picture of where literally it says that Jesus triumphed over the enemy and literally made a mockery out of him. That's the victory that you and I can walk in. But this is the deal. That's the war. You and I still have the battles until he is destroyed that we have to deal with, well, all the time. And with every immediate victory that you win over the enemy, need to know this. It is only temporary, never permanent. I'm sorry. Satan will always come back. He did it with Jesus, remember? After Jesus overcome his temptations, what did the enemy say? The devil said to him, you know what? I'm gonna come back at a more opportune time. When was the more opportune time? It was when he was broken in the garden of Gethsemane. He was bent down and about ready to say, I'm gonna chuck this thing. God, if, it's, if there's any way I can get out of this, and you can just know that the enemy was saying, come on, Jesus, come on, give it up and then all of a sudden there's this Holy Ghost power. Not my will. Thy will be done. A rhema. A powerful declaration. If you win a battle and think the enemy won't come back, two things will happen. I learned this this week. Number one, you won't be prepared to stand. And secondly, you'll become depressed because you'll assume that this battle is your fault when it isn't. It is simply the enemy coming back to try and get you another time to take the bait and to fall. Know your enemy. He's always going to come back. And be a person of prayer. It's not listed here as a weapon, but Paul adds it because it pervades all we do. He says, pray. He gives us four alls. Pray in all occasions. Just be a person of prayer. I don't know if that means five minutes a day or five hours a day. I don't know what that means. But it's always having an attitude and ready to pray in all occasions. With all kinds of prayers and requests being ready to pray for people. Pray for yourself. God, would you do this? Oh, God, I'm so thankful that I was victorious yesterday in this area. Be alert and always keep on praying. The idea of persevering. Never forget, we need God every day in every way. And then he says, pray for all the saints. There's a lot of people in our church that are going through stuff right now. And I just say, whenever I whenever I think of them, I go, Lord, would you just bless the Blomquist? They're just You know, they just lost their daddy. Lord, just bless the the voces. They got this baby thrust on them. And now they've got to live it out and be good moms and dads. Give them wisdom. Adele, she's fighting some health things. Would you just be with her? Give her assurance. You know, just as I go through the church or if I'm doing something. That's what you do. Always ready on all occasions to pray for all the saints. It's not heavy-duty stuff, loved ones. It's just a sensitivity to God's Spirit. And the last thing is take a stand. This is the concept of standing against the devil, but you have to understand what's preceded is that you're with God. Well, what do you mean? He says here that you're with God. It's the idea that you first come to God because, well, you're being set up with his armor because of your relationship with him. James 4, 7 says this, draw near to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. He's almost saying the same thing that Paul says. But the word resist here is the word anthitomai. It's the word from the word that we get, antihistamine. What does an antihistamine do? Well, it represses the attack of cold and symptoms. So what is he saying here? Well, you take your stand and you will be able to repress and push back the attacks of the enemies. But what does he say? Hear this, this is really important, that the resistance comes because there's first an attitude of submission. The power behind the resistance will always be your submission, loved ones. I cannot successfully say no to the devil if I have not said yes to the father. That's what he says. Draw near to God and then resist. You can't do it in your own strength. And so many people try and do that. That's why it all comes back to what? Jesus. The focus of this and being able to stand is not being able to yell at the devil like you'll see some guys do on TV. You don't focus on the issues around you. You always come back to Jesus. Jesus. Fighting the devil, yelling at the devil, chasing after the devil and problems, they will never produce Jesus. Jesus will always produce right behavior and victory in whatever you do. Here's kind of a quick outline of the book of Ephesians, and we'll be done, except for a little face to face time. Because you have been seated with Christ, there's three parts because you've been seated with Christ, come into relationship with him, Ephesians 2, 6, and now you walk with Jesus, Ephesians 4 and 5, you can now stand with Christ against anything the enemy brings your way. Chapter 6. You're seated with, you walk with, and now you stand against. Whenever you see in the Bible, the word walk associated with The uh, Christian, you know what it is? It really speaks of maturity. Jesus, um, you're it. You're the victor. We simply get to walk in it. We'll face battles, but I pray you would teach us as individuals, as a church. Lord, we're not militant. We simply want to walk with you. And in that, be strong, be courageous, be bold, and stand against the onslaught of the enemy. Not because we raise our fist or raise our voices, but because we raise up a standard of truth, righteousness, the word, and walking in it. I pray your blessing upon these people. And for those who right now would be in the throes of a battle, remind them the victory belongs to you and that we who are fighting in this thing, we would simply trust you, look to you in every way, every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Your love, God bless you. Thanks for everything.